Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Florine Stettheimer. My guest is Barbara Blooming, the author of Florine Stettheimer, A Biography, which was recently published by Hermer Verlag. Stettheimer offers the early American modernist as a voracious consumer of European modernism, a networker who built impactful relationships with the New York avant-garde, and as a major painter. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $30 to $42. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Jill Maggot. But first, Barbara Blooming, after the break. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. This spring, the Pulitzer presents Assembly Required, an exhibition featuring nine artists whose work invites your active participation. Engage with work by Francis Elise, Rashid Arin, Saya Armajani, Tanya Bruguera and Instar, Ligia Clark, Elio Oidesica, Yoko Ono, Ligia Pape, and Franz Erhard Walter. Created between the 1950s and the present, the artworks respond to distinct social and political moments, from unrest in the United States during the Vietnam War to Peru's military dictatorship. The artists offer unique perspectives on social change, addressing the need for optimism and hope in the face of global tensions. The exhibition poses questions about how art allows us to imagine new ways of being in the world. Assembly Required opens March 4th and is on view through July 31st, 2022. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Ulysses Jenkins Without Your Interpretation. This major retrospective of the groundbreaking Los Angeles artist encompasses video works, performances, and archival ephemera that highlight the scope of Jenkins' 50-year practice. A pivotal influence on contemporary art since emerging in the late 1970s, Jenkins has constructed an other history that interrogates race and gender as they relate to ritual, history, and state power. Ulysses Jenkins is on view at the Hammer Museum February 6th through May 15th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24th, 2022, Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens' fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate Rubens' ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. And we're back. Barbara Blooming, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Let's start with how Florine Stedheimer has come to be remembered, and that means starting with a guy named Parker Tyler. Who was he and what role did he play in creating our idea of Florian Stedheimer? Well, unfortunately, he's basically the source of all the incorrect alternate facts and marginalizing of this incredibly innovative, significant artist. Parker Tyler was a drama critic who unfortunately only met a Freudian who wrote in purple prose. And he met her once when she was quite elderly and was asked after her death by Zetheimer's lawyer, Joseph Solomon, to write a book about her. 
But unfortunately, he decided that he needed to make up and exaggerate a great deal about her, which he admitted in his book, in the biography. And her friend Carl Van Vechten, who wrote the intro to the book, said the same thing, that he was kind of made her larger than life. And in this turgid purple prose that he wrote, he said at one point that he speculated that she became ill when she was very young and wanted her works destroyed, which he has no basis for saying. And then later he said that in her deathbed, she wanted her works destroyed, which in matter of fact, her her lawyer, Joseph Solomon, did tell me in the 90s that she said once when she was extremely ill and full of drugs. But he said also that she said that and he decided not to tell anyone because she was so drugged up. She never repeated it. And everyone knew that she wanted, all her family and all her friends knew she wanted her works all given to museums when she died. And because all the museums and curators had her in their exhibitions and she was so popular, she knew they'd accept them. And when she then asked him to come and write her final will, she said, let's leave them to my sisters because they know what I want, which is to leave them to museums. And later in the book, Parker Tyler actually said she left them to her sisters because she wanted them all left in museums. And the other thing Parker Tyler said was that she was so devastated at not selling in her first solo show in 1915 at Nodler's Gallery that she never showed again in public, except in her salon to her friends, which was a complete lie, because if you look at the facts, she showed 46 times at the Whitney, at MoMA, at the salon in Paris during her lifetime. Oni called her a virginal spinster who was so close to her two younger sisters. But the idea of a virginal spinster eccentric woman who's so shy and never shows and wants her paintings buried with her or destroyed is so enticing that art critics, writers, curators, and even the Whitney's latest catalog have in it that Stedheimer was so shy, devastated, that she never showed again after 1915 solo show, even though she was in the first Whitney Biennial and was in MoMA and all these other exhibitions. So this has marginalized her and really kept her from being recognized as one of the most important modernist artists of the early 20th century. The other major impact on our knowledge of Stedheimer's life, albeit in a kind of different direction, was the scissors of her sister, Eddie. (laughs) Yes. Oh, God. How did Eddie play a major role in what we know about Stedheimer and her work? Eddie Stedheimer, the youngest sister, and Carrie Stedheimer, who was a year or two older than Florine, traveled with their mother and lived with their mother until their mother died when they were in their 60s. But Eddie and Florine couldn't stand each other. And as soon as the mother died, Florine moved out into her own studio. And yet everybody assumes they were so close, the three Steady sisters, which is not true. Anyway, as soon as Florine died, Eddie went through and tore out, I mean, she didn't just cut them out, she tore out huge swaths 
of anything personal in Stedheimer's, Florine's diaries, her letters. You see these big pages torn out and edited her poems, although she did publish them privately for friends. And so we don't know a lot of what Florine was feeling or thinking. And even though, again, it's a myth people keep propagating that Eddie donated the works to all the museums of Stedheimer's paintings, Eddie always claimed migraines or asthma, and her lawyer is the one that donated them. Eddie didn't even go to any of the performances except one of the last of Florine's wonderful stage sets and costume designs of the avant-garde Gertrude Stein opera for St. three acts she didn't show up we will get to that opera a little later on that's probably a good cue to begin to move through stedheimer's life and work along the chronology in which she lived it you write in the book that the family and indeed the wealthy german jewish hermetic milieu into which stedheimer was born in 1871 hermetic being your word was hyper formative and that in some ways stedheimer never left that that milieu. What did she take from and get out of her family background? And indeed, what did her family enable? (laughs) It was the mother side of the family, where she had a very large matriarchal family with the Walter side that was part of the very wealthy hundred Jewish German families of New York, the Bernheims, the Guggenheims, the Seligmans, who really started in the textile industry and then quickly moved into banking in New York City. The father, Mr. Stedheimer, came from the textile industry in Rochester, and the family early on moved to Rochester, where the recession killed the textile industry in Rochester. The father and grandfather went into debt and the father disappeared when Stedheimer was a very young child and emigrated to Australia and never saw him again. And very quickly, the mother Rosetta took her five children and began living for the next 40 years, half of the year or three quarters of the year in Europe where one of her wealthy sisters lived and they settled in Germany where her sister lived. And Stedheimer kept very close touch with all of the family, with the Guggenheims, with the Seligmans, all of these German Jewish families socialized together. They had houses on the New Jersey coast. In the Adirondacks, they all socialized there. In fact, it's not very well known, but one of Stedheimer's second cousins was Natalie Barney, the lesbian poet in Paris, who I'm sure they visited, which is one of the reasons that because they traveled so much in Europe and spent a long time in Paris, they were very comfortable with the idea of open sexual preference, lesbians, gays, and very much welcomed them in their salon, unlike many other of the New York salons where it was illegal. But this very close familial relations very much influenced the Stadheimers and Florine, although they were socially Jewish not in terms of religion. She was very proud of saying she never went into a synagogue and they celebrated Christmas. She loved Christmas trees and they loved going to Catholic services because she loved the ritual. 
So how does she go from growing up in this kind of tightly controlled social system to being, of all things, an art student? Well, she had tutoring in the German academic tradition from the time she was probably six or seven, because we have drawings of her as notebooks that she was very skilled technically as an artist in terms of draftsmanship from a very, very small age. And her mother recognized that clearly. And so she had tutors right from the beginning. And she went to private schools in Germany, in Stuttgart and then Frankfurt and in Berlin. Berlin, where she went to school. And one of the things that she did throughout her first 40 years in Europe is she basically visited every single museum and studied all the great paintings and actually made fun of them. There are very funny entries in her diary where she says Botticelli's Venus is a little too fat under the arms and she would be better if he'd taken a little bit of the fat off her. Or she says, you know, Michelangelo's David isn't really as good today. Or one of Raphael's paintings, she, he couldn't possibly have painted that. She falls in love with Velázquez Las Meninas and says this is one of the greatest paintings ever painted. So she goes around and she's very quickly making her own judgments on old master paintings. And meanwhile, she becomes very proficient at academic painting in the German style. Then in her early 20s, she enrolls in the Art Students League in New York, which is the only school other than the Pennsylvania Academy in New York where women are allowed to draw from an actual male nude. Elsewhere in America, women were only allowed to draw from plasters. They weren't actually allowed to see nude men and draw from them. And the Art Students League is actually a quite woman-oriented school. It had a number of women on the student government, and she becomes the secretary of the student government. And there she studies with professors who are teaching the French academic style. And we have a bunch of paintings of hers where she is extremely good academic painter. They're beautiful, very tender nude women paintings that she makes that are very lovely. And she paints them very realistically, but quite sweet and lovely. And you see that they're not perfect. You see sort of the dimples in their skin. And they're sort of very honest looking women, not idealized. So she can paint by this time as well as any male painter. And of course, this is probably also because she's financially well enough off, her family is very wealthy, that she could study painting and could travel all around Europe the way men, male artists would go and travel in Europe to get an art education. She could do that because of her family's wealth. No later than 1898, she's traveling regularly in Europe. You write in the book, she's using kind of Germany as a base, but going to France and Italy and Spain and so on. And she keeps doing this for almost 20 years up until uh, the outbreak of World War I. So I want to ask about some things that she must have seen in Europe and that must have influenced her and ask you to maybe kind of detail what she found in, in each of these couple of things. One is the Rococo. There may, was a huge Rococo revival. And what's so interesting about that that I found is the reason there was a Rococo revival is that Germany started having more babies than France. 
And the French government became worried about that. And so one of the ways that they decided to do something was to revive the Rococo, which kind of led to sort of an art, the Art Nouveau, by telling women that they needed to go home. And this coincided with Charcot, who was Freud's teacher, and the idea that making the home psychologically a reflection of personality and coming up with this feminine design style and making design, creating a salon of design and trying to make it as important as the Salon or Academy of Painting and saying that this very feminine S-curve of the Rococo was now going to be in fashion, but it was a very feminine style. And so women now were to create artwork that was feminine, but also create look at creating and designing their domestic environments in a way that reflected their personality, but that was very feminine. And at the same time, however, this was the time of the new woman or the suffragette who women, French women were deciding that perhaps they shouldn't marry because when women married, they gave up all their money to their husbands. And if they got divorced, the husbands kept the money. So this was all coming together at the same time. Stedheimer in all her diaries, you see her copying Rococo style furniture and Rococo revival furniture and being very interested in this idea and visiting artists where their frames, these old, these Rococo frames and furniture were exhibited together and making drawings of this and being very attracted to the idea that a painting and a furniture became an, in one installation. And she's very attracted to Botticelli, although, as I said, she doesn't think, she thinks his Venus is a little fat. So she makes her modern rendition of Botticelli's Venus, which she later calls kitsch, but she makes a painting of it. She is also very attracted to this idea of feminism because her father left. And she begins to write about idea that getting married taps a woman of her creativity, which is something she begins to feel very strongly. And she becomes very anti-married and makes fun in her diary of men who she used to have as sort of boyfriends or men who courted her. And she makes fun of them now that they're married in her diary. Her sister, Eddie, meanwhile, goes to get a PhD in Germany and writes a book about that's very anti-marriage. A woman has to choose between going on and being a scholar or getting married, and she chooses scholarship. So these three sisters all become quite feminist. I presume that she was, in addition to being influenced by the Rococo, was influenced by concepts taken from the French decorative tradition, because Stedheimer will go on to make you know, screens, for example. Was she mindfully mining the French decorative tradition and migrating it to America? Yes. And one of the areas that was very strong in France right then was Japonisme. And 
the interest in Asian art, which was brought by a man named Samuel Bing, who brought Japanese woodcuts, Yukioi prints, and Chinese and Japanese works of art to Paris. And she began to collect Japanese woodcut prints, but she also made these two beautiful screens, one of which has sort of pseudo-Chinese-Japanese figures, which he built out of gesso, so they're sort of raised and then painted with gold paint on a big screen. And then another, she made a beautiful Rococo screen, which is gold, again, gessoed figures of herself and her three sisters and her brother, where each one has something they're holding or around them that was of interest. Her sister, Eddie, with a quill for writing for as she wrote books. And she herself is already holding a palette and wearing a, for, and a paintbrush and wearing a beret. So already at this point, she's showing herself as a professional artist. What is also interesting is in the screen, she is making sure that you are very aware that she is a new woman because she is wearing pantaloons, which is outrageous for the time because the only women who are wearing pants at this time are suffragettes. And in fact, Rosa Bonheur in Paris at this time got a special license from the Paris Academy in order to be able to wear pantaloons to paint. So here is Florine Stettheimer, circa 1912 to 14, picturing herself on this screen wearing pantaloons and holding a palette and a paintbrush. Maybe the most important single artist influence she discovered in Europe was Henri Matisse. Matisse will stay in her work throughout her career, not just on canvases, but including in her interest in ballet and opera. But perhaps there's nothing she takes more directly from Matisse than her interest in floral still lifes and how she presents them. What in Matisse do you think really worked for her? In her early 40s, because she was in France, Stedhammer managed to work her way through the salons and see many post-impressionist styles before many of the American artists who never made it to Europe, including post-impressionism, Cezanne, Van Gogh. And she tried many of these styles. She tried sort of Fauvist style, pointillist style, and worked her way through them, as well as many different media. But then she found Matisse, and she made a number of early Matisse works. She was attracted most, I think, to the color, but also the thick, fat application of almost pure pigments right from the tubes. And as you said, she made a number of flower paintings and still lifes. When she came to America, in 1914, she continued to make a lot of these Matisse-style still lifes, and then also began to use this thick, fat paint in bright primary colors when she turned to make a number of paintings of her 
family of her mother and, and two sisters and herself, as well as a very interesting painting called Jenny and Genevieve of a woman named Genevieve and a black maid named Jenny. But all of these were a little bit clumsy, but very bright, very colorful, very strong, bold paintings. World War I arrives and Stettheimer is, you know, more or less confined in New York and environs. The European travels are over. And in 1915 or 16, she makes what is very likely a self-portrait, a nude, that you present as a pivotal, if not the pivotal, painting in her career. It's at the Avery Library at Columbia, as is a lot of Stedheimer's work. We'll probably talk about that, too. Certainly, it's a picture that mixes European traditions with a certain declaration of, of independence. How does it point toward or even initiate what we now think of as her mature style? The nude self-portrait is absolutely pivotal in Stettheimer's work because when she came back and permanently settled in New York in 1914, she basically, like so many of the French who came over at the time, like Duchamp and Leger, she was fascinated to see all these skyscrapers and the modernism of New York. And she said, basically, I am going to paint this new modernist New York, and I am going to create a new style that captured it. But first she had to let go of European style completely in order to create a new American style. And to me, the nude self-portrait, which is totally based on Manet's Olympia, Goya's nude Maha, and one of Titian's Venus, because she combines elements of all of them, but mostly... Manet's Olympia, which is a portrait of a prostitute, which is so funny because this is a portrait of herself. And so far, as far as I've been able to learn now, it's the third nude self-portrait by a woman. It's the same size as Manet's Olympia. It has the same pose as Manet's Olympia, except that the pubic hair is on view, like Goya's nude maha, and it's bright red, with the floral bouquet from Manet's Olympia, not held now by the maid, but held up by Stettheimer herself, as saying that I can control my own floral bouquet, which draws the eye directly down to her red pubic hair. So she's saying... The great tradition of male nudes, I am now taking it over myself. What is very funny is that she was born in 1871. The average lifespan for women born in 1871 was mid-40s. Stedheimer was about 44, 45 when she painted this. So she was considered an old woman. So here's a wealthy Jewish woman who's considered quite old at this time, painting herself stark naked as the equivalent of a European famous outrageous painting of a prostitute, or in Goya's case, a mistress, full length, naked, with her pubic hair showing, holding up a bouquet, offering for you to look at her. 
Only instead of her eyes shut or looking away, as in most male nudes, which are were painted throughout history for male delectation or masturbation, she is looking straight at you saying, hey, you know, are you kidding? You know, look at me. And the greatest detail in the painting is not on her body, which she was very proud of it being so slim and in great shape. It's on the face and the feet. So it's a funny painting. It's a painting she did to amuse herself. She never showed it, but she hung it prominently in the apartment where all her friends and acquaintances and guests came for a salon. And she featured it in a very amusing later painting, which she played on the idea of people's blindness and not really looking at art. And it really is a painting where she's saying goodbye to European academic painting and signaling that now she is going to create a new style of painting that is from a woman's gaze. The painting is also notable for its reliance on a china white paint that Stedheimer used straight out of the tube, I think. So it's a, a color and a sense of pictorial atmosphere that really is important to her work across her mature career. Do we know how she came to this, I don't know what to call it, but, but like a dominant white, as it were, why she liked it so much? She always liked white. And one of the things that's very interesting is that from the beginning, her rooms, even from when she first moved to the 76th Street apartment that she and her sisters and her mother moved to in 1914 when they returned to America, we don't know prior to that, she wanted to decorate the whole apartment, but they wouldn't let her. She decorated her own room in white and gold trim. And she did that throughout her life, when she, wherever she lived. And all of her fabulous furniture, which she designed, her frames and her fabulous studio at the end of her life, were all characterized by white, gold, and then white cellophane, which was a brand new material that she was to become famous for. This was Stedheimer's style, and along with her white pantaloons and white smock that she showed herself, painted herself often in, Stedheimer branded herself much the way O'Keefe did. She decided that she was going to control how she was seen. She was a designer as much as she was a painter. And from the beginning of when she created her wonderful furniture screens, she painted, she created furniture, and she created frames. So she was innovative in her furniture design, her interior design, as much as her painting. So her rooms were always white and gold, and most of her paintings had a white, china white background. Let's pause from the paintings for a moment to talk about Florine Stedheimer, the poet. One of the joys of the book is that you foreground the verse that Stedheimer wrote. You publish many examples of it. It is Ogden Nashi, only a little more elegant. 
a little smarter, maybe. <laughs> How did Stedheimer come to poetry? And if you've got one or two favorite examples you'd like to read, that would be awesome. Actually, we don't know, but probably as soon as she was adult, she began writing these little poems, uh, little scraps of paper in pen and pencil all over the place. And there are scattered pieces of paper in her handwriting, which we don't know that she ever meant anyone to read. She sent some poems to her friend, Carl Van Vechten, who was possibly her closest friend, the author, but otherwise they were just things she sort of wrote to herself, but they're all about her life so that I can trace them. She writes about things from her youth. She writes poems about all of her friends from George O'Keefe to Marcel Duchamp to Van Vechten. They're funny. They're nasty. They're sad. They're about food. They're sexy. They're to past boyfriends. They're about different periods of her life when she was growing up, going to school in Berlin, about male bodies, about coming to New York, about being late in life, against marriage. I mean, I will read just a few. One of my favorites is a very feminist one. Sweet Little Miss Mouse wanted her own house, so she married Mr. Mole and got only a hole. And then there's one that I think is the most tender and private. Occasionally, a human being saw my light, rushed in, got singed, got scared, rushed out, called fire. Or it happened that he tried to subdue it. Or it happened he tried to extinguish it. Never did a friend enjoy it the way it was. So I learned to turn it low, turn it out. When I meet a stranger out of courtesy, I turn on a soft pink light. When I which is found modest, even charming, it is protection against wear and tears. And when I'm rid of the always-to-be stranger, I turn on my light and become myself. And then, let's see, I love this one. This is about her sense of art. And tell me if this isn't very prescient for the art market today. Art is spelled with a capital A, and capital also backs it. Ignorance also makes it sway. The chief thing is to make it pay in quite a dizzy way. Hooray, hooray. Yeah, they're great fun. They're a lot. <laughs> they, they, they're, they're a total hoot. One of... Stadheimer's most sophisticated and smartest and cleverest paintings of, of this period, kind of the late teens, is called Soiree. It's at the Beinecke. It, it's, it's a picture that includes a version within it. It's a picture that includes Stadheimer's self-portrait nude within it, the picture we were talking about just a moment ago. Before we talk about Soiree, I want to note where it is. It is at the Beinecke Library at Yale, Libraries um, not typically known for their painting collections. Indeed, lots of Stedheimers have ended up in libraries. The Avery at Columbia University has a whole trove of Stedheimers. What impact has it had on our understanding of Stedheimer and her presentation as a figure by historians that so many of her works aren't in private hands or in art museums, but that so many are, are out of the way in library collections? Yes, there's a real issue that 
a number of the works and some of the best works were in fact given to Yale and to Columbia. A very funny story, the reason I found Stettheimer is my professors all wanted me to work on Homer or Aikens for my PhD. And I was reading a letter from O'Keefe because I was determined to work on a woman. And she, the letter was about how her husband Stieglitz hurt his finger pulling on his underwear after taking a bath in the bathroom. And she wanted him to put, just put a popsicle stick and a tape on it and go to Lake George with her. But he insisted on going to the emergency room. And after several hours of just sitting there, they finally found a doctor who put a popsicle stick and a tape on it. And she wrote to this woman, Florine Stedheimer, aren't men ridiculous? So I went to find who Florine Stedheimer was. And hanging in the offices of Beinecke were these fantastic paintings, including soiree. And I said, went to my professor, Jules Brown, and I said, I have to work on this woman. She's fantastic. They have her letters and her diaries. These paintings are wonderful. And he said, yes, but she's, she's not a very well-known painter. And, you know, she's not that great. And I said that I need to work on her. And I wanted to work on someone that not just graduate students would read their thesis because there were already so many books. And I found out that she was one modernist that the Whitney had not done any shows on. So I went to Tom Armstrong, who was the Whitney director at the time, and he agreed he'd do a retrospective on her. So that's that Yale Press ended up doing a book on her with me. And we did a retrospective in 1995. But anyway, Luckily, now, in the last few years, Yale has finally borrowed a number of these paintings, not all of them, from Beinecke and has put them on view. So at least three of them are now on view at Yale Art Gallery. Columbia, in 1970s, when the lawyer gave Columbia a number of Stedheimer paintings. He also gave, with the estate, a lot of money to build a Florine Stedheimer gallery at Columbia University, which is where Stedheimer's Aunt Jo was the first female medical intern in America. However, Columbia never built it. So they basically broke the agreement. Now, I think last year or the year before, Columbia has finally built a gallery, but it is not just for Stedheimer paintings. I think, you know, they're having lots of shows. Some of them are terrific. Once in a while, I suppose the Stedheimer works will be shown there. But their Stedheimer works are in the basement. And a lot of them were in a big box that said not by Stedheimer, including the nude self-portrait. And in 1995, when I went around to locate and try and write this dissertation, I looked at the self-portrait and I looked at it and I saw the face and I said, that's Florine Stedheimer. And so I was able to locate and identify most of the Stedheimer works. But the problem is that three of her self-portraits, her portrait of her sister and Carrie, her sister Eddie, and the first family portrait and all of her early works are at Columbia. So that's difficult. But also there's a 
portrait, a painting at Columbia, which I found and discovered in this book that people have seen over the years. But this is an example of how people don't look at Stedheimer paintings. And I have two more examples of that. People talk about how Stedheimer was a shy, virginal spinster because she never married, as though not marrying automatically makes you shy and virginal. In this one painting called The Bathers, Stedheimer shows her two sisters relaxing outside in a country estate they rented for the summer. One of the sisters is in an outdoor shower. She's naked taking a shower. The other sister, Eddie, is lying on a towel in the sun naked, except for these beautiful shoes she's wearing. She's lying there and her genital lips, her vagina is painted and wide open to the sun. Now. That is so absolutely shocking for 1920, which is when the painting was painted, that I have not found a major woman artist who painted a sexually explicit painting of a woman's genitals until feminism in the 1960s, that Stedheimer would paint her sister's genitals in a painting in 1920 is outrageous, but she did, and nobody noticed it until I wrote this book. That painting also includes on on the right-hand side a kind of serial representation of ovaries underneath where uh, you know, along the border of where one of the women is bathing. Yeah, it's a and it's at the Avery. It, it's unknown. But anyway, going now talking about soiree. Soiree is one of the funniest paintings, I think, in early 20th century art history. It is a painting of the Stedheimer Salon, and it is an homage partly to Velázquez Las Meninas, because on the left is the back of an easel holding the back of a painting, like Las Meninas, and in front of it are two men looking quizzically at it. One is Leger and one is Gris, two famous French painters who came over, like Duchamp, in the early 20th century to escape the First World War. On the left on the wall is partially view of Stedheimer's first family portrait with a little bit showing her mother. In the middle is a very nasty portrait of the playwright Avery Hopwood, who was known to be very boring. And sitting next to him is Gertrude Stein's brother, Leo Stein, who was hard of hearing. And because he's sitting next to boring Avery Hopwood, Leo Stein is holding his hearing aid as far away as possible. Right in the middle of the painting, it must be said. (laughs) On the right is a sofa where... Isabel Lachaise, whose husband is looking at the painting, is sitting on the right. And at the back is a large copy hanging on the wall of Stedheimer's nude self-portrait. The only one who sees and is looking at the nude self-portrait which is, of course, an outrageous self-portrait, is Isabel Lachaise, who has her hand to her chest going, meanwhile, sitting next to her on the sofa is Florine herself, who has her head in her hands and is looking out at us 
with the exact same pose as her face in the nude self-portrait, as though she's saying, aren't people ridiculous? Everybody is here in the room talking, and nobody except Isabel Lachaise is noticing this outrageous portrait of me stark naked on the wall. Yeah, and it's a it's a painting full of art historical jokes and references, too. There's a figure we can't see sitting on the couch wearing Harlequin pants, which reads like a Picasso reference. That person is next to someone wearing a dress that seems practically right out of Klimt's portrait of Mata Prima Visi, and on and on throughout all picture. It's just absolutely terrific. As we get into the 1920s, Stedheimer begins to paint more and more portraits. I thought a good one to talk about might be her portrait of Alfred Stieglitz. Among other things, that picture demonstrates how closely she was paying attention to a range of American modernism. She was very close to Stieglitz. There's actually a very funny story, which I will will paraphrase. Stieglitz was older, and George O'Keefe and Stedheimer ended up being very good friends. In fact, O'Keefe gave the eulogy at Stedheimer's funeral. But O'Keefe was very ambitious, and she basically looked for who was going to be the gallerist who was going to be best for her to affiliate with. And it was Stieglitz. And so she contacted him, sent her drawings, and basically ended up seducing him. He left his wife and child and married her but and brought her to New York and showed her work. Well, he did an exhibition of her work, but before he did that, he photographed parts of her body in a very famous exhibition. And you've probably seen photographs of her hands, of her torso with her breasts, which he put on view. And it was slightly scandalous, but these lovely black and white photographs of O'Keefe's body. So he takes her to meet a Stettheimer. And she, they come to the door, and Stedheimer opens the door, and I'm just slightly paraphrasing this, and she says, oh, Miss O'Keefe, it's so nice to meet you whole, as up till now I've only met you in parts. So anyway, in her portrait of Stieglitz, she does the same thing she did many times in her paintings with her good friend Duchamp called a multiplication virtuale, which means repeating the same thing several times so that it's as if time is passing several times within a canvas, which is something that happens in medieval art or Persian miniatures. So she has Stieglitz twice in the painting. Once is his big figure as he's charging through the painting in his black cape. And once he's standing over at the side as the head of the gallery with his arms crossed. She also has all of his artists represented by small works or large works throughout the gallery. Baron de Meyer, who was a photographer who made up his title, Baron, he wasn't, is shown just with a little ermine cuff entering on the right. Stieglitz Gallery was called the 303, the room, so those letters are stenciled. You've got little Arthur Dove sitting in a corner. Charles Demuth walked with a cane, so his cane is seen coming in on the left. You've got some marin watercolors on the left side. 
you've got Paul Strand's name. What's so interesting is you've got several references to O'Keefe. One is hidden. She first sent these wonderful, which are my favorite, actually, I think her best work, these wonderful abstract drawings. That she made in Texas early on, yeah. Yes, which is what first caught his attention. There is one hidden, you have to really look or have a great, luckily my printer did a wonderful job. If you look at the large figure of Stieglitz in his black coat, if you look around his hand in the middle, you see this wonderful swirl in the black. That's one of her drawings. Then you see the large pink leaf behind. That's based sort of a, an approximation of one of her autumn leaf paintings. Then behind it is sort of a not very good approximation of one of her landscapes. Then at the right of his head, you see her name backwards, vertically. And then there's kind of very faintly her profile. And then the whole thing is more or less in grisaille, which is sort of a gray, black, white, and gray, which is an homage to the fact that Stieglitz was a photographer. And he used, instead of white walls, because it shows photography so well, he painted his walls a characteristic gray to show photographs in his gallery. And her um, portraiture was actually very good. And the thing about her portraits, Stettheimer's portraits, was that she was part of this wave of portraiture at the time which was true in literature and painting of the time, which was to describe a person not so much exactly the way they looked, but by their hobbies, by their life, by things that would tell you about them surrounding them. And so all of her portraits give clues to their personality, their life, their friends, by what surrounds them in the portrait. And as I started to say earlier, the Stettheimer Salon was the only salon in New York where it was illegal to be gay. You would be put in prison. You could be very open about your sexuality. And many of her friends were bisexual, gay, lesbian. The Ahrensburg Salon in New York, which was more so-called avant-garde, you could not be open about your sexuality. It might be known, but you had to kind of keep it quiet. The Stettheimer Salon, you could be absolutely open and flagrant about it. And everybody felt very comfortable. And in fact, in her portraits of, for instance, Vir the musician Virgil Thompson, who was gay, she put a huge black pansy in the upper corner. And in her portrait of Carl Van Vechten, who was bisexual, and wrote a book about a gay man who throughout the book says, a thing of beauty is a boy forever. She put a a red tie and purple socks. And the black pansy red tie and purple socks were all sort of overt symbols of a gay man. So, you know, Stettheimer 
was very open in the 20s, in her portraits and in these few paintings about fairly politically controversial identity issues, anti-Semitism, anti-segregation, and 1920 was when women got the vote, and she made two paintings that are very much unusual topics about women in their own environment without any need for men, but they're also very unusual topics. For instance, one is called, and this is one of my favorite paintings, Spring Sale at Bendel's. I don't know anyone else who would paint the inside of a fancy department store, Bendel's, when women are frantically turn, trying on dresses, having trouble getting them on over their heads, or whirling around trying to look at their backs in the dress in front of a mirror, or fighting, literally leaping over a table to grab a scarf out of another woman's hands because they want it because it's on sale. But there's this huge painting of just that topic, and it's such a woman's topic. And of course, then you have Mr. Bendel at the bottom of the stairs frowning at you with this tiny little dog, Pekingese, with a little shirt on with Stedheimer's initials at the bottom of the stairs. And you have various salespeople looking very put upon as these women struggle to try on these clothes. It's a wonderful painting. Let's wrap up with 1946, big exhibition of, of her work. It's two years after Stedheimer dies, and the show is curated by none other than Marcel Duchamp, who, as I think we've talked about a couple times, tends to pop up in Stedheimer paintings here and there. Where was the show, and how did Duchamp come to be involved in it? Florian Stedheimer and Marcel Duchamp were actually very close friends and colleagues in terms of artists. They respected and liked each other's work very much. Florian painted five portraits of Duchamp, including a wonderful portrait of his head, which has his brain kind of emanating out of his head as being so smart. And she painted a double portrait of him as Rose Selave, where he's sort of cranking her up. And I I believe that Florian Stedheimer served as the model for Mandre's photograph of Duchamp as Rose Silvey. Duchamp talked about his work, including the fourth dimension, with Florine. And in her portrait, she makes reference to not only his ready-mades, but to the fourth dimension. He made a beautiful drawing of her, even though she didn't let any of the major photographers who were friends of hers take pictures of her. She did like this one drawing that he made of her. When she died, Duchamp wrote to her sister, Eddie, and said, could I please be involved in a retrospective of her work. And he contacted Tom Mowbray, who was the curator at MoMA, and asked to work with Henry McBride, one of her friends, to work on the show, which he did. He chose the works. McBride wrote a short essay. And when I researched the exhibition, I found that the Florian Stedheimer retrospective was the first full retrospective of a woman 
ever mounted at the Museum of Modern Art. There had been other exhibitions of women's work, but they were in photography or of a dancer. O'Keefe had had a small show a year earlier, but Stedheimer's was the first real retrospective by a woman. And it was the only exhibition of an artist that Duchamp ever fully curated. MoMA's uh, exhibition archive has seven installation views of the exhibition. Uh, You can download the catalog, other good stuff. We will have a link to that on the show page at Man Podcast. Barbara Blooming, thanks so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. The Mississippi Museum of Art is pleased to be the first to present A Movement in Every Direction. Legacies of the Great Migration. This exhibition asks 12 contemporary artists to trace their personal stories through the Great Migration and explore their family connections to the South. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition will unveil newly commissioned works across media. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, opens at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson on April 9th. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. Next up, Jill Maggot returns to the show to discuss a new exhibition in the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth's Focus series. It features work in which Maggot juxtaposes the COVID pandemic with the nation's often economically motivated response to it. To date, nearly one million Americans have been confirmed as dying from COVID. Provisional counts based on statistical modeling are significantly higher. The exhibition, which was curated by Allison Hurst, will be on view in Fort Worth through March 20th. Magid's work typically examines systems through conceptual strategies that allow her to investigate those systems from within. Jill Magid, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. We're talking about your new project at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. And one of the things that you do across it is intertwine capitalism, our, our capitalism-centric economy, and you try to make links between how capitalism and the American economy intersects with the lives of individuals. Was there an event or a book or a film or some other kind of research that motivated you to find ways to bring these two things together? I read and see so much that I think I can locate a few things and tell you them, but it's probably just the trajectory of my work in general in which I've been thinking about property and ownership and possession and individual legacy and lifespan. So those are some underlying concerns that 
probably brought me into that space. But I think what more directly brought me into this whole tender project was I was thinking about how in the media during the pandemic that the government and people in the media were talking kind of fluidly about the economy and the American economy and the stock market, which isn't the American economy, but somehow sometimes gets confused for it, was registering and moving and growing or shrinking and easily compared that to lives being lost during the pandemic. So that was what started congealing some of those ideas. It it isn't fully from there because I was already kind of thinking about pennies and currency before the pandemic happened. Okay. I got to I got to interrupt. Why were you thinking? I mean, nobody thinks about pennies. (laughs) So why were you? No, it's true. I wasn't necessarily. Well, I was. It's so funny. Like this is going to sound confusing on because now I'm going back and trying to remember. But I had this idea I was asked by Creative Time to do a public artwork and I was thinking a lot about public space and I'd been asked by Creative Time to do a public artwork off and on for a couple of years and I was really, I had a lot of feelings about it, but in some ways I was intimidated because you kind of have to start off spectacularly to make a public artwork of the scale they usually do and while my work often becomes or grows to a spectacular level, it doesn't really begin there. It kind of begins with like a more quiet question or a feeling. And so I was though thinking about what kind of gesture I would want to make for public space. And I wanted to make something that actually circulated out into the public and it wasn't something that you went to. It sort of went to you. And so I started thinking about currency and money and circulation because the circulation, again, when I was thinking of copyright and property, you have to think about how things circulate and who owns them and who has the rights to them. So it was, it was in my mind. And then I was thinking about When I was thinking about money, I started thinking more about coinage. Well, let me let me kind of jump in with with something I've been thinking about in regard to your interest in pennies. There's a historical link going back to and probably before Rome between how a nation asserts itself and coinage. The king and the queen represented on, on, on the coins. The aristocracy is literally the coinage. The nation or nation state traffics through its coinage, all of which is like a 4,000-year-old idea that continues to this day. But it's not something artists generally land on. And so not only did you land on pennies, on coinage, but you landed on the lowest, <laughs> for, you know, the, the lowest of the low of American currency, <laughs> the commonest of the common of American currency. Right. And that was not by mistake. <laughs> But actually, when you say artists don't land on that, I had read a book that was when I was thinking about currency and all that. I read this really great book by Richard Seaford that I'm not remembering the title exactly right now, but it was basically about the idea of Greek tragedy 
and coinage and exactly coming from the history that you're talking about, about on coinage basically being the propaganda of a leader of a country, you know, being his portraiture or her portraiture, but usually his, that it was a way of using the monumentality, which we don't think of with coinage, but a kind of monument that circulates and reinstills power. Because what Richard Seifert talked about is he believed, and whether he's right or not, and he's very smart, he's probably right, but it's just a really inspiring thought. His idea is that the whole concept of abstraction rose from coinage because that was the first time he traced he could trace back in history when just a circle of metal that has its own value or lack of value right because it's pretty small amount at that point it was gold or silver but suddenly by stamping an image on it of this leader and sometimes a text you know or a phrase that suddenly that piece of metal had a whole different value and participated in a different system of exchange. So he links that moment to a moment of abstraction that had a huge effect of the whole way abstract thought exists. And he brought in how that led. You couldn't write tragedy without that change of metal going to coinage. For the first representation of what will be on view in Fort Worth, again, which is called Tender, it's produced by Creative Time. You laser etched on the edge or rim of 120,000 pennies, the phrase, the body was already so fragile, and then entered these pennies into normal circulation through bodegas and whatnot. I'm going to ask a question that I've never asked anyone before, and I will never ask anyone again. Was your son's swallowing of a penny important somewhere in this process, or was that just something that happened that you took advantage of in exhibiting an x-ray of it in your recent show at the Renaissance Society? (laughs) It was the latter. A lot of people knowing my work was that a lot of people knowing my work was like, did you ask him to swallow the penny? And I love my children very much and wouldn't, I mean, I might do such a thing if I thought it was important, but I wouldn't ask my at the time seven-year-old child. But I did, after we got over that you know, it was quite dangerous, even though my sister swallowed money when she was a little kid, too. I think it's not that uncommon. (laughs) It's genetic, you know, but kids swallow things all the time. But when he swallowed the penny, you know, I called the local hospital and they were like, you got to bring him in because it's actually quite dangerous when any foreign object is passing through the body. There's a point right before the object enters the stomach, that if it, if whatever is swallowed becomes an obstacle there, it's really serious. So you have to get past this danger point. So actually when the x-ray is taken, it's before it's passing through the danger point. So it's kind of funny or scary story that during the pandemic, my son was near me a lot of the time doing first grade And so I was making at that point the test pennies before they'd uh, fully entered circulation. And he was lying on his back and reading the edge and it slipped from his hands and fell on his tongue. And his reaction 
was to swallow it. So he was fine. But when I brought him to the hospital, they took the x-ray. And before I even saw the x-ray, I asked them if I could have a copy of it and explain to them that it was an artwork. And, you know, this doesn't go over well in a hospital, you know, when they're looking at you really crazy. But I was like, I really need the x-ray for artistic purposes. And then when I got the x-ray, I just couldn't believe it in a way because the theme and feeling of the work is here. The phrase is the body was already so fragile And then this fragile child, you know, swallows this object that's a foreign body going in in this precarious position. And it is caught right over his heart. And it's in a position where it's the perfect circle. You know, it's it could have been it just all aligned. And it's brighter than anything else in the X-ray. It really right in the middle of the thing. Right. And it has something I love in artworks that's really hard to get, but I think only comes from a really earnest place that is making something, but it's also about recognizing a moment. That's why I don't always like this term found object that sometimes is applied to something that exists in the real world. Like I don't find that x-ray to be a found object. I think it is. It was a series of events that are both fortunate and unfortunate because of the danger of it that had a poignancy that I recognized as speaking kind of profoundly to these ideas that I was exploring. And then I tried to kind of remove the original x-ray had all the hospital notations on it, like his name and the site and all that. And I had them take that out and only leave the medical markings that kind of look like a Broder's or a Magritte artwork, you know, with this floating L, I mean, R, sorry for right there. And it kind of makes this really glowing, beautiful, glowing image. The title of the artwork we're talking about is In Circulation from 2020. That's the x-ray piece. Before we move on from the x-ray, I should ask, how's your son doing? He's fine. We have the penny. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. Good for the penny, too. And you know what's interesting is at first when about that piece, I actually didn't even want or questioned whether I wanted people to know it was my son, if if it would be read to much about that story instead of like a general feeling of fragility. But I actually, I think it works either way, but I think it is interesting that he is my child as well. So it doesn't say that in the title or anywhere in the materials, but it sort of maybe affects the reading of the work as well. He's also got great collarbones. So there's that. (laughs) Pennies. So in the context of the tender project, you use them as a metaphor for the transmission of a virus, for the way a pandemic spreads. Metaphor hasn't always been central to your work. What about it worked for you here? Well, I would say that metaphor arose as a quality of the work. I didn't choose pennies because they were a metaphor of spread, but they just are because anything that's being circulated through touch 
in the way money circulates and the fear people had of using cash, which led to what was called a coin shortage, which is a misnomer. It was not a coin shortage. Just in case people who are listening don't know that, and I think we're still in this quote unquote coin shortage. But because people were scared, were firstly not leaving their houses and secondly scared of touching money or being in relationship to people, the flow of cash, especially coinage, really kind of got stuck. And it's the coin star machines in supermarkets, you know, where people bring their extra hoarded coins and drop them in those machines. That's what really keeps the circulation of coinage through the United States going. And since people weren't doing that, coins got stuck. But there were more pennies produced during the pandemic than there ever were in history before to kind of try to get more money out of there. So in terms of your question about metaphor, my interest even before the metaphor of pathogens being spread in the same way money was, was more about this idea of human touch and value and pennies being the lowest value, the U.S. government actually loses quite a lot of money from the production of pennies. But then it makes you question of who who is using pennies. Often it's the elderly, it's people in lower economic statuses that, you know, aren't banking or might have a distrust of the banking system. Like there's all these statistics of who's using coinage. So I was more interested in the use of pennies and the meaning of pennies and all of the myths around them because they're also kind of magical. (laughs) And then it also just flowed really well into the project of transaction of money being similar to transaction of virus. So Tender expanded into or transitioned into or gave way to a project called Labor Days, which is a new body of work that's, that's debuting in Fort Worth. Is there a clear way to describe how Tender grew into Labor Days? Yeah, I think it's also what happens a lot with my work is I get really interested and excited about an area, you know, a a series of ideas and systems. And Tender, I realized when I started Tender that I didn't really know how money was made and circulated and who was which systems were responsible for that. And there's a really interesting trajectory of what is run by the government and where private companies come into the circulation of money. And in that case, I worked with Brinks, the armored carrier company, and I chose Brinks because I like the white trucks and how the movement of money to me really reminded me of the movement of bodies in the refrigerated trucks or really the lack of movement of bodies in the refrigerated trucks that started popping up all over the city during COVID. And so I made a film called Tender Balance that was all happening when I created Creative Time Project. But I know with a public work, it's best to keep it a bit simple, you know, because It's out in the public realm and you can't really control it. So I focused on the engraved pennies and the fact that there were 120,000 of them, which equaled one Trump stimulus check. 
And the equivalent of this one check, like a dispersed monument, kind of went out. But because of my interest in systems and often federal systems, I really wanted the circulation and the production of the money to flow along with normal flows of circulation of money. So I got the pennies, you know, directly from the U.S. Mint, and then they were distributed through these Brinks trucks in the same way that money always is. And so I made a film really uh, kind of using the pennies as the protagonist that leads you through the city and the touch of human beings, and some of them are the laborers, you know, who are producing the pennies, bagging them, putting them on the trucks. And then, of course, you have the bodega owners and the people that work in the bodegas and all of these labor channels along the way that are kind of moving these pennies along until they end up in the public hands, which By buying things, you're again entering, you know, they're constantly entering these systems of circulation and labor. And so I was thinking a lot about labor and especially this term essential worker, right? And at the beginning of the pandemic, I feel like essential workers were really hailed as the city would have fallen apart if there hadn't been these essential workers. And now we're in this place where time has passed. And people who are being called essential workers talk about how they've been treated. You know, you have the great resignation and people questioning how hard they work for how little they make, which is having another effect on the economy, right? And so I made the piece Labor Days, which is actually a series of drawings. The installation around it isn't really called Labor Days, but I think they all work nicely together, which we can get into. But Labor Days are a series of drawings. There's two sets that I made for the show at the Modern And they are presidential, they're drawings, my drawings of presidential proclamations from 2020 and 2021 that were published in a publication called the Federal Register, which is a daily U.S. publication that's meant to be a kind of diary of the government. It's published every single day since 1937. And within that book, presidential proclamations are published. And so I took Biden's and Trump's, their proclamations about Labor Day, and drew them larger than life, really meticulously. And then in the margins, I kept all of my hours and like a time clock, you know, a coding of all of my labor so that my labor is being used to make these drawings about labor and essential labor to kind of think about what is labor, what is valued, what's original, what can be replaceable. These were the things that I was thinking about, you know, as time has passed since, since tender, kind of like those thoughts that started with the circulation of money then led to the labor and questions around labor that grew out of that. So tender includes pennies, of course, and pennies can circulate for years and years and years. Your installation, Bodega Flowers, 
operates in kind of the opposite way. It's an installation of fresh cut flowers, as one might see outside a New York City bodega. Only, of course, flowers which are produced and delivered by labor don't circulate anywhere near as long as pennies do, which I imagine was at the core of the whole idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I was thinking a lot about the site of bodegas and the labor that goes into them. And again, these were a lot of feelings and intuitions that then, and that's kind of how my work works. I'll research, but then I start noticing things. And I believe that you notice things more and you're more attuned to them just because you start understanding, you know, that something you didn't think about actually has like a lot of structure underneath it to think about. And so I started really noticing, I mean, it's iconic, but I started paying attention to those oftentimes outside of bodegas, those tiers that are filled with bodega flowers, or everyone calls them bodega flowers, but they're just flowers, you know, fresh cut flowers. Bodega flowers are like the cheap version, right? So if you want really fancy flowers, I guess it depends where you live, but usually you'd go to a florist, right? And you get like the higher grade flowers, but bodega flowers are kind of like the least expensive flowers you can buy. You kind of pick them up while you're picking up a jug of milk, you know? And so when I was thinking of this thing of replaceable labor and ephemerality and fragility and also the bitter sweetness of cut flowers because fresh cut flowers we call them fresh cut flowers but they're dead <laughs> the second they're cut you know so they're dead flowers and so I wanted to kind of recontextualize these fresh cut flowers that are so ephemeral and fragile but yet kind of on the cheaper end of this labor production of flowers that are often coming from international locations to get there, you know, to be $3.99 at your bodega. So I really like the visual and aesthetic relationship of these black and white and pencil drawings, and then this colorful but ephemeral and sort of cheap flower installation that kind of makes a wall through which you have to walk to to get to the Labor Day's drawings. A layered interrogation of capitalism and the pandemic. And perhaps best of all, this time your son didn't have to swallow anything. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in closing the drawings, could you give us a quick idea of what narrative or series of ideas will unfold across the drawings as they proceed along the gallery wall in Fort Worth? The two sets, it was interesting, of course, that, you know, you have these two different presidents, both addressing labor in the time of the pandemic. And I think, or I hope, you know, that the drawings are experienced in kind of two ways. One is just, you know, you don't have to read them at all. They're just a kind of visualization of the act of labor. And it was something interesting I felt when I was drawing them because they took like 30 to 47 hours each to do them. And all the while I was playing books on feminist economics while I was drawing them. And I found it to be this really interesting experience doing them that, that a lot of times while I was drawing them, I wasn't conscious of the words. I was just kind of drawing them almost as 
you know, objects on a page and then getting kind of caught up in the language of these presidents around ideas of labor. And so I don't want to, you know, tell the viewer what to feel, but I'm really excited and curious to see these works that I made moving on from Tender that include the glass pattern pennies and the film that really are this kind of lament and feeling of absence and loss then juxtaposed with this federal voice around what labor is and why we should feel that it's American or not. That's what kind of they talk about. And I also realized in drawing them that in a way there's a nice tie-in between the Labor Day's drawings and the pennies because in the pennies on the edges, you have the appropriated phrase, the body was already so fragile. And that's what's intervening in the voice of the government. And with Labor Days, it's my own body and hand intervening in another voice of the government. So I'm really excited to see the, what it will feel like in the space to see all of these things together. And I think the other thing that's going on there is the, in the United States, the right wing often argues in favor of an Ayn Randian unrestrained economy. And the way you've put these groups of works and objects together, every single one of them points to government's role in the economy. Totally. In the economy. So there's ideological rejoinder therein. Jill Maggot, thanks very much. Thank you so much, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.